The History of Philosophy, Founders of Western Philosophy, Thales to Hume, by Dr. Leonard Peikoff. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let us begin. And I want to begin by asking you to imagine that you've just taken a trip to Mars, and you encounter on Mars a race of men who are just like us in all physical and psychological respects, and you observe one peculiar thing about them, namely that they walk around on their hands only. Uh, this is utterly senseless. Their hands are torn and bleeding. Their hearts are pounding. Their faces are flushed. This is a misery invoking widespread insanity. Your first question would be why? What could explain this kind of behavior? Now hold that in mind and take a look at our world on Earth. <coughs> if you look at the realm of art, you will see that the dominant school represents smears, which uh, Marianne Suries divides into two categories, the neat ones and the messy ones. <laughs> you will see that music, modern music, represents a progression of unintelligible noises and that a good deal of modern literature, an unintelligible succession of letters of the alphabet, and that the theater alternates between characters in garbage cans and uh, taking part in orgies with the audience. In the realm of education, you will see that teachers are militantly against teaching and in favor of social adjustment and or student power that they are opposed to facts or the teaching of laws, that they regard thinking as abnormal, and that they tell little Johnny to express his feelings, <coughs> with the result that he cannot read. Uh, if you look at the realm of religion, you will see that there are some 300 warring sects, uh, all claiming their insight into the appropriate other dimension by means of revelation. And that one of the crucial conflicts in the field is in the between the Orient, where they worship various types of animal, and the West, where they worship the Pope. Uh, you'll see that the latest uh, development in Christian theology, in avowedly Christian theology, is atheism, the view that God is dead. And in the age of atomic energy and space travel, we hear uh, excerpts from Genesis broadcast from outer space. If you look to the realm of science, modern science, one school tells us that cause and effect no longer holds. Another tells us that the theory of light has refuted the law of identity. Most all of them tell us that science is based on arbitrary presuppositions, just like religion, and no more objectively valid. Many tell us that there are no such thing as laws, simply statistics. And uh, <coughs> a few chime in but one of the latest discoveries is that electrons can move from one place to the other without traversing the space in between. This is a brief sample. What are the net results of this rampant irrationality? Well, if you look at it psychologically, you will see that the percentage of neurosis and psychosis in the West has reached epidemic proportions. If you look at it politically, you will see the escalating violence the uh, threat of nuclear war, 
the spreading worldwide slavery, the vicious, senseless political murders, and the inexorable march on the part of the West towards some version of fascism or communism. If you want a philosophic barometer of the state of a culture, there are three questions that will tell it to you. What do people regard as certain? What do they regard as realistic? And what do they regard as human? We are told today that nothing is certain but death and taxes. And the skeptics aren't even sure of that. We are told that the characters of Tennessee Williams or the ones inhabiting garbage cans are realistic, but Cyrano de Bergerac is not. We would be told that Eleanor Roosevelt is human, but John Galt is not. Now I submit that this is crazier than the example of Mars that I began with. And that the question, therefore, is why? But it's more complex than that because there are great things, good things, rational things in the world and particularly in Western civilization. There are the rational elements left in modern science, which is an enormous achievement. There is the legacy of the Industrial Revolution. There is the remnants of America's individualist political heritage and the remnants of 19th century romantic art side by side with all the rest. How are we to understand it all? How are we to understand such an incredible mixture? If you want a symbol that is no more eloquent than 10,000 others that could be used, what I think of myself as a symbol of this mixture is a New York City skyscraper with everything that implies with a 13th story labeled 14, because 13 is an unlucky number. <coughs> This is a symbol of the mixture of modern technology and ancient numerological mysticism. Now, why? There have been better periods in the past. Why didn't they last? Where will we look for an explanation of it all? The answer is <coughs> the history of philosophy. If you want to know why, <coughs> consider an analogy. Suppose that you were a psychotherapist and you had a patient, an individual, of mixed premises, partly rational, partly irrational. And he was accordingly tortured, stumbling, groping. And you want to understand him. The first thing you would have to do is understand the cause of his troubles. You'd have to understand what are his bad premises and why he holds them, how he came to hold them. And then you would have to guide him to uproot his bad premises and substitute correct ones in their stead. To do this, the crucial thing you would have to do is probe the patient's past. Because his present can be fully understood only as a development and resultant of his past. Because he is one continuous entity, he builds conclusions on conclusions. And to understand the crucial events in his past life is therefore urgent. You have to understand those events, the conclusions he drew from them. You have to see how and why across the course of his development he was led to form and accept certain errors and then to build upon them, thereby compounding his original problems, progressively stifling his better premises, making himself more and more twisted, confused, helpless. 
In a word, you would have to reconstruct the main points of the man's intellectual development from childhood on. Now this analogy applies to an entire culture. The stand-in for the neurotic of mixed premises is Western civilization, the world you live in. The stand-in for the psychiatrist is each one of you. You live in this culture. Your lives and futures depend in thousands of ways on its future. If you pursue values in this world, you have a responsibility to your own lives and values to correct the course of the world to put it on the right track again. <clears throat> to fight for your values in a world such as ours, you must regard yourself as the psychotherapist of an entire culture. And just as in the case of an individual, so, and even more so in the case of an entire civilization, it develops across time. Its present state at any given time cannot be understood except as an outgrowth from its past. The errors of today are built on the errors of the last century, and they in turn on the previous, and so on back to the childhood of the Western world which is ancient Greece. To understand what exactly are the root errors of today's world, why these errors developed, how, how they clashed with and are progressively submerging its good premises. And therefore, to understand what to do to cure the patient, you have to reconstruct the intellectual history of the Western world. I don't want to take the time now to give you many examples. I'll give you just schematically one. Consider the phenomenon of progressive education to which I allude. How would you explain that except by reference to John Dewey? But Dewey simply applied to education the principles of William James. And James simply made an obvious deduction from Hegel. And Hegel is a minor variant on Kant. And Kant was trying to answer Hume, who was the last consistent consequence of the trend inaugurated by Descartes and Locke who were simply reformulating in a somewhat more secular way the principles of Augustine, who was simply reformulating in a somewhat more religious way the principles of Plato, who was trying to answer the dilemma posed by Heraclitus and Parmenides, who took off from four sentences of Thales with which we are beginning tonight. <laughs> the history of philosophy <coughs> is like a philosophical psychotherapist's biographical report of a civilization. And it is therefore a precondition to understanding and therefore to changing the nature and present course of the civilization. That's the first and primary purpose of any course on the history of philosophy. And there is a second. The history of philosophy <coughs> is not like the history of science. <coughs> It is not simply a historical antiquarian interest. It is not a dead subject. The only issues that a history of philosophy properly deals with are living, fundamental issues, perennial issues of philosophy. And in the course of a proper history of philosophy, you have presented to you all the main positions on all the main questions that have ever been formulated in Western philosophy. And consequently, it is valuable in its own terms as an introduction to the whole subject of philosophy. In particular, it's helpful because I will not only present to you the conclusions of the various philosophers, but also the arguments that they offer in favor of these conclusions. Almost all of the philosophic errors which are undermining the world 
were originally and still today are advanced by their supporters with an array of arguments claiming to prove that the viewpoint in question is true. And in fact, these viewpoints could not have acquired the power that they have over people's minds if they didn't have this structure of apparently supporting arguments, which gives the errors at least the appearance of plausibility and rationality. So if you are to fight the errors, you have to know clearly the main arguments advanced for them. You have to, in effect, hear the devil's case presented as strongly as that case permits, which is not too strong, but still. You have to be sure you know on each issue what really is true and what is wrong with the arguments advanced for the erroneous view. If you don't know this, then you are not in a position to fight successfully against the errors. And therefore, I am going to, in each case, present as strongly as I can the arguments by which the various views are defended by their supporters, particularly those arguments which are still widespread in terms of their public acceptance today. And at the appropriate point, I will present to you the criticism in each case where objectivism disagrees. For the opening lectures, I will defer all criticism. My criticisms will essentially come either in the section on Aristotle, who took care of a great many errors, or in the last lecture, on the objectivist answer where I'll take care of everything that hasn't been covered up to that point. In the end, therefore, I hope you have not only an increased understanding of the causes of today's world, but a philosophic arsenal to help you combat successfully what needs combating and to defend what needs defending. Now, this is a history of philosophy, so it will be appropriate very briefly to tell you what philosophy consists of. I will not take time to dictate these slowly. If anyone wants these exact definitions, ask during the question period and I'll take the time there. The word philosophy comes from two Greek words, philane meaning to love and sophia meaning wisdom. So etymologically, it means the love of wisdom. And at the very beginning, uh, it was the subject which uh, you were in, if you were in anything, there was no other subject. Anybody who loved wisdom and wanted to acquire knowledge was by that fact a lover of wisdom. He was a philosopher. Uh, the ancient philosophers, therefore, all had views on things that we would not now regard as philosophy, but as science, such as physics, mathematics, biology, etc. But progressively, as each of these disciplines acquired a certain stock of information on its own, it split off and set up shop on its own. Mathematics was the first to do so, and subsequently, many hundreds of years later, physics and chemistry and so on. Uh, therefore, uh, what is philosophy as we use the term today? Well, essentially, it consists of five main divisions. One is metaphysics, and that is the branch of philosophy which studies the nature of the universe as a whole. W-H-O-L-E. <laughs> Metaphysics embraces two types of question. One, what are the main ingredients of the universe? Is there another dimension or only this one? Is there only matter or is there also mind or is there only mind or what? And the second type of question under metaphysics, are there any laws which are true of everything which exists, of everything? For instance, some philosophers say the law of cause and effect is true of everything and therefore is metaphysical. Epistemology. 
the branch of philosophy which defines the nature and means of human knowledge. It is concerned with all questions on the order, how do you know you know? What does knowledge begin with? Are the senses valid? Does man have some means of knowledge over and above the senses? For instance, reason. If so, what is reason? How does it operate? If you say by logic, what does it mean to be logical? If you say by concepts, what are concepts and how are they related to sense experience? If you say man has some faculty of knowledge over and above reason in the senses, then what faculty? For instance, faith, revelation, LSD, women's intuition, etc. What are the, the claims of any of those candidates to means of uh, knowledge? Can man acquire knowledge? Is there anything outside his province of knowledge, etc.? All that is epistemology. Now there is an offshoot of metaphysics and epistemology, uh, which is helpful to know just for purposes of ancient philosophy, and that's something we can call philosophical psychology. It's not really a separate branch of philosophy. It really is the application of metaphysics and epistemology to a philosopher's view of the nature of man, the basic philosophical nature of man. Not experimental observations, which would be scientific psychology, but philosophical psychology. And that would deal with such questions as does man have free will or is he determined? What is the relationship between reason and emotions? Uh, things of that order. Uh, we will, in presenting Plato and Aristotle, I will present their views of man under the title of their psychology, although if you want you can call that simply the application of their metaphysics and epistemology to the theory of the nature of man. Then there is, of course, ethics or morality. I'll use the two terms as synonymous, and uh, as an audience of students of objectivism, you surely know what that is. The branch of philosophy concerned to define uh, a code of values to guide human choices and actions. But then there is politics, the application of ethics to social questions, the branch of philosophy, which defines the proper nature of society and particularly the proper functions of government. And you, of course, know what that is. And then there is aesthetics, which is the uh, branch of philosophy concerned with art, the nature and purpose of art and the standards by which it is to be objectively evaluated. We will not discuss aesthetics except very peripherally in this course. We'll concentrate on the big four, metaphysics and epistemology being the base of any philosophy, ethics being the application to how an individual should live, politics being the application of ethics to social questions. Philosophy, therefore, really consists of three basic questions. What is there? That's metaphysics. How do you know? That's epistemology. And so on. That's ethics and politics. If you wanted an overall definition of philosophy, I would simply repeat it all in one sentence. As follows, philosophy is the subject which studies the nature of the universe and of man's means of knowing the universe, and which on this basis provides a code of values to guide human actions and institutions. Now, in the early days of philosophy, they did not have complete systems of philosophy with organized views in all of these branches. They had only isolated ideas on separate individual questions, at least so far as we know from the few fragments that remain to us. The first overall systematic philosopher who has views of an organized kind in every branch is Plato. <clears throat> and thereafter, all major philosophers have systematic philosophies. 
Now, one more word before we plunge in regarding the chronological division of the history of philosophy so you have a perspective to know what's coming so you don't sit in suspense wondering who's coming next. The history of philosophy is divided into three broad periods, ancient, medieval, and modern. Ancient is dated from the 6th century BC until about the 6th century AD, a period of about 10-1200 years. Uh, it's officially declared to be dead in 529 AD when all of the pagan, i.e. non-Christian schools were formally closed and non-Christian philosophy was prohibited in the West. Medieval philosophy is the period when Christian philosophy dominates the scene and it picks up two or three hundred years after Jesus around the fourth, fifth century AD and uh, dominates the field entirely until the Renaissance in the 15th century AD. So there's a thousand years. And then modern philosophy is the period from the Renaissance, the 15th century, to the present. By convention, the present century, the one in which you live, is called contemporary philosophy, which we will not get to in this course since we stop in the 18th century. Now you see that gives us a big program. We have about 2,400 years to cover from the 6th BC to the 1800s, and we have 12 lectures, so that averages 200 years per lecture. We can be thankful, though, for the Dark Ages because we'll cover hundreds in one second. <laughs> now, within ancient philosophy, there are four main divisions. There are a group of people of whom we know very little that came before Socrates and who are therefore very logically called the pre-Socratics. Uh, in most of these people, we do not know when they were born or when they died, but simply that they were alive and kicking in some year. And that is called their floruit, F-L-O-R-U-I-T, which means they were flourishing in this year. And that's, you assume that they were born 30 or 40 or 50 years earlier and or died 30 or 40, 50 years after it. Uh, we don't have any connected works from this period, uh, except little excerpts. We have fragments from the father of philosophy, Thales. We have four sentences. From Heraclitus, we have 130 uh, and so on. And that, of course, is enormously difficult to interpret, but we don't have to worry about the academic difficulties there. And we'll be on those tonight and next week. Then we come to two philosophers who are really a unit. Socrates, who was 469 to 399 BC, Plato's teacher, and then Plato 427 to 347 BC. So let's say we'll treat those as one unit regarding Socrates as simply uh, a man who gave Plato some very uh, seminal ideas which he proceeded to develop. Then uh, Aristotle, 384 to 322 BC, Plato's pupil for 20 years, who then developed a philosophic system diametrically opposed to Plato. And then a group of second-rate philosophers stretching across hundreds of years as ancient philosophy waned and died. Uh, they include the followers of Epicurus, the Stoics, skeptics, Neoplatonists, and sundry others. And uh, they are collectively called the post-Aristotelians, the winding up phase of ancient philosophy, and we cover all of those in one evening here. Medieval philosophy has two main eras. There is uh, the Augustinian period. Augustine himself is 354 to 430 AD, and he represents the attempt to develop Christianity on a Platonist basis. 
and that dominates the scene for hundreds and hundreds of years until about the time of the second main era, which is the Thomistic era of medieval philosophy under the influence of Thomas Aquinas, who is 1225 to 1274, and he represents the attempt to combine Christianity with the philosophy of Aristotle, thereby, as we shall see, opening the door to the collapse of Christian influence and the development of the Renaissance. The 15th and 16th centuries have nothing of any interest. Uh, they simply represent the time when the modern world went back to school to study ancient philosophy uh, and uh, find out uh, what had happened that they had lost knowledge of during the medieval period. So a modern philosophy of any distinctive kind begins again in the 17th century and divides into two famous schools. The one fathered by René Descartes in the 17th century uh, and uh, we will see him and his followers. That's called the rationalist school. I'll explain the term as we get there. And the one followed by John Locke reaching its climax in David Hume, the final one in this course, the empiricist school. That is a chronological survey of what to expect. And now let us plunge in at the very beginning. Now, why do we say that philosophy and science started with the Greeks in the 6th century BC? Because after all, there had been human beings for a long, long time before that. There had been flourishing civilizations long before this time. Uh, and their surrounding Greece. There were the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and many others. And they had acquired a fair amount of primitive knowledge in fields like astronomy, mathematics, and so on. But none of them except the Greeks had anything that you would call philosophy. Now, of course, they had philosophy implicitly, by implication. Every human being has some kind of code of values and view of reality and knowledge. But theirs was essentially, by implication, these non-Greek civilizations. Insofar as it was explicit, it was metaphorical, enormously uh, mystical, mythological, filled with parables and uh, dogmas and so on, and nothing that you would call a self-conscious or systematic or critical or rational attempt to raise and answer philosophic questions. In this latter sense, philosophy as a self-conscious, disciplined, rational phenomenon began in the 6th century BC in Greece. Now, what prevented all these other civilizations from developing philosophy? Two things. In regard to their view of reality, they believed that true reality was some other dimension superior to this one. They believed accordingly that nothing in this world was intelligible. This world was a series of events operated by the gods behind the scenes in another dimension. And there was no way of trying to explain or understand this world. All you could do was bow, pray, and beg, because this world was basically simply a byproduct of another dimension. They had the same view with regard to ethics. Morality was simply a series of injunctions by the appropriate gods, and you could make no more sense of morality by reason than you could of physical phenomena. And therefore, there was no possibility of understanding the world. In other words, they were supernaturalist cultures, and they meant it. A consequence of that was a second point which prevented them from developing philosophy. They held that this life and this earth are not only unintelligible, but also evil. If you want to get their perspective, 
and there's a valley to some extent depending on the civilization, but it's a pretty fair statement. Imagine that you are caught in a jail cell. Now you will not, in the normal case, have a passion to discover the molecular structure of the bars or the viscosity of the air and so on and so on. You will want to get out of the jail cell. That will be your overriding concern. And that was the overriding concern of most of the non-Greek cultures. Uh, this is perhaps best typified in regard to Egypt. The thing you think of, of course, is the pyramids. And they are a monument not to life, but to death. And the thing in Egypt was not how good a life could you live, but how good a death could you die. In other words, these previous cultures took religion seriously. And the result was a complete stultification or failure to develop philosophic ability. Greece was, however, an exception. As one commentator puts it, it was an, I'm quoting now, it was, quote, an oasis almost completely surrounded by barbarian custom and savage practice, unquote. Now, why? What about the Greeks made it possible? Well, it's two things, partly political, partly religious. Now, on the political, I'll ask you to see ordinary histories, which are reliable on this point. Uh, what it amounts to is that the Greeks by the 6th century BC, owing to various factors, had achieved a comparative degree of political freedom. The powerful monarchies of the earlier centuries had given way to the freer city-states, and in that climate, philosophy and science could develop. I might note parenthetically that wherever government remained strong, philosophy never took root. And the classic example of that is Sparta, which never had a philosophic thought, so far as you can tell from what they left. Uh, so if political conditions are one, the other is religion. Now the Greeks had a very peculiar religion. Uh, the religion, as you know, of the gods of Mount Olympus. And according to that view, the gods were not creators of the world. They were not rulers or directors of the world. The Greeks believed, all Greeks believed, that the universe had always existed, that it was a natural phenomenon, uh, that uh, the gods are simply one natural evolutionary development along with everything else. The gods therefore could not interfere in any major way with the operation of the universe. The Greeks had a saying which is dubious, but nevertheless they had it, uh, nothing in excess. And uh, the idea was that that applies to the gods also. They have their own place, and as long as they keep their place okay, but if they get out of hand, reality will fix them. Uh, so the gods were, in effect, streamlined men. They were elder uh, brothers to man. In effect, they were not something you groveled before. They were not omnipotent. They were not omniscient. You were not to fear them. As a result, the Greeks held that this world is intelligible and it was a good place in which to live. You know their statues, that was their concept of what is realistic. They thought that this was a good world, it was a friendly, happy place, you could achieve enjoyment and ease during life on earth, and therefore they wanted to make something of life on earth. Now they believed in a shadowy immortality of sorts, but they didn't yearn for it. For instance, in one of Homer's works, the ghost of Achilles says in a very representative statement that he would rather live on earth as the slave of a man 
uh, even of a poor man, which is a big disgrace to be the slave of a poor man, uh, rather than to be the king and the ruler of the whole other world. And that is a typically Greek attitude. You see a very pro-this-life uh, attitude. There were exceptions, as we'll see later tonight, but this was the dominant trend. For these reasons, because knowledge was possible, because it was worthwhile, the Greeks developed a love of knowledge. They developed philane for Sophia. Uh, they took ideas seriously, and we had for the first time the development of the civilization of thinkers. Now, what did they think about? The first things that interested them uh, were twofold, two different phenomena. Now, I emphasize that we're at a period where we know essentially nothing. I need, that is a, to say they know essentially nothing. There's no philosophy yet and no systematic science. So, of course, the uh, first observations are going to be by their nature very elementary. The first two things that interested them, if you're taking notes, I would take this down, are change and multiplicity. Now, let's explain what we mean by each of those things because they're going to run throughout the course. Uh, by change, we mean anything that happens. Anything that happens, mental or physical. Any occurrence, any event, any motion, any activity. Winter, and then spring, and then summer, and then fall, and so on, in, in a cycle, that's change. A thing is born and grows and reaches its uh, maturity and then dies and decays and turns to dust. That's change. Life and death, waking and then sleeping, day becomes night, wet things become dry, and cold things become hot, and light things become dark, etc. Uh, you know about rivers rushing off to where they're going and landslides. The idea is clear. Now, what interested them about change? Well, I'll take an example that they obviously did not use, not having paper matches from Nevada. I'll engage in a process of change before your eyes. For those hearing this on tape, I'm lighting a match. <laughs> now, here is a process of change. Now, you observe this match that I have. All right. Now it's undergone a process of change. In fact, two of them. There was something white and flickering and hot, and now it's vanished and something black and so on has taken its place, and hot. Now that's a simple example of change, and the questions that they wanted to know was, how do we make sense of this? Where did the flame come from? It wasn't there, and now it is. Where did the smoke come from? It wasn't there, and now it is. Where did the white tip go to? The cold, hard white tip, which was there and now isn't. How did we get from one state to the other state? How are the two states related? That was the first question that they asked with regard to the phenomenon of change. And now, with regard to multiplicity, what does that mean and what was the question? Multiplicity is a big word for many. The Greeks were impressed by the fact that there are a great many things making up the world, the physical world. There are shoes and ships and sealing wax and cabbages and kings. If there were only cabbages, this question wouldn't have come up, but there's all kinds of different things. And the question that they asked is, what is the relationship between all of these different things? 
There must, they thought, be some sort of common denominator uniting or tying together all these different things. Could it be, they asked in effect, not using these examples, could it possibly be that the only thing there is to say about bananas is that they're made out of banana stuff? And that's it. And tomatoes are made out of tomato stuff. Television is made out of television set stuff. And that's it. No, they said that's impossible. There must be some sort of relationships tying all these many things together, making them part of one universe. After all, some of them change into others. So the two issues are tied together, you see. Water becomes ice. So there have to be something in common to make it possible for one of them to become the other. Well, how are we going to do this? Now, against this background, we can introduce the father of philosophy, the man who put the first answer forth to these questions, and as far as we know, was the first one to ask the question. His name is Thales, T-H-A-L-E-S. He flourished in 585 B.C. He's regarded as the father of philosophy with a capital F. As I say, we have only four sentences of his left, so you could become a world authority on Thales. <laughs> he comes from a town in Asia Minor called Miletus, and therefore the school that he founded is called the Milesians, M-I-L-E-S-I-A-N-S. And he put forth essentially the following hypothesis. Now I'm reconstructing, but it seems to be justified. He put forth the idea that there is one fundamental stuff which makes up the entire universe. Everything. Bananas, philosophers, and sealing wax. And everything else are made of this one ingredient, which he called, or subsequently was called, the world stuff. The stuff that makes up the world and everything that's in it. Now this view that there is only one stuff which makes up the world came to be called monism. M-O-N-I-S-M from the view of the you see that there's only one such stuff. Now his reasoning seemed to be that if there was one stuff, we could explain how everything is related. All the many things will be just many different forms of the one stuff. And we'll be able to explain change because change will simply be one form of that stuff becoming another form of that stuff. And therefore we'll have a common denominator uniting and tying everything together. Now, of course, there's no warrant for the view that there's only one such stuff. But the approach that he is attempting here was of incalculable importance. It is the approach which to this day is the essence of the scientific approach. The attempt to find unity amid diversity. To find common denominators to enable us to integrate a whole wealth of disparate observations. The whole process of physics, for instance, has been started with a whole series of laws and then Newton comes along and shows that you can reduce them to just a few laws and Einstein to just a fewer laws and so on, constantly seeking for unity in the face of diversity. The same is true of chemistry, which took the endless stuffs of the world and tried to find them in 90 or 100 odd elements and then the physicists came in and tried to reduce those elements down to 8 or 10 building blocks and so on. That attempt was inaugurated by Thales. And what he was looking for, if we use the Greek terminology, was he wanted the one in the many. The one in the many. That's clear, right? I would write that down if you're taking notes because that's very important. And another way in which it was described was it is the permanent amid the changing. The thing which is always there and which is 
All the changing things are simply different forms of. Now, as to Thales' view as to what is the one and the many, what is the world stuff, it is, of course, very primitive. He held that it was water. And he is sometimes jocularly described as a hydromonist, but that is <laughs> carrying terminology to the point of insanity. Uh, he held it on the basis of observations which are sensible within this frame of knowledge. Water was the one thing he could observe that could take on solid, liquid, and gaseous form. Water seemed to, to be able to turn into air because when you put a dish of it out, the next day it was gone and all there was left was air. That's, of course, evaporation, a phenomenon he didn't know about. Earth seemed to turn into water because you dig in the earth, you find water. Of course, underground springs, which they regarded as earth turning into water. Water can become solid as in the form of ice. Water dries up and sometimes you find little wriggling living creatures which suggest a central connection between water and life and so on. Now, uh, for all of that type of reasons, he said that water is the one in the many. In the many. Now he's wrong, of course, but the importance of Thales is the question and the category of answer, not the specific answer. He was the one who established the idea of a naturalistic approach to the world rather than a supernaturalistic one, who dispensed with the supernatural, with gods, as explanatory principles, who introduced the idea that there are natural laws in the nature of things governing what takes place, and that we can account for the entire phenomena that we observe by reference to one logical reality. And he also suggested by implication that the indispensable precondition of it all was sense observation. But that alone would confront us with the, would tell us the nature of reality. Now, of course, all of this is simply implied from the four sentences that he left us. <laughs> but it was essentially there. So much for the father of philosophy. Uh, he had a number of successors in the Milesian school, which we are going to pass over without mention. You can get them from a history book if you want. Uh, some of them weren't as good as he was, and some were more advanced. And they speculated that the world stuff wasn't water. One of them thought it was air, one of them thought it was earth, and another one had his own weird view as to what it was. But in any event, that's as detailed as we can pass over. Science, philosophy, although very primitive, was nicely started. And now we reach the next philosopher in the progression. Heraclitus. H-E-R-A-C-L-I-T-U-S. He is not a Milesian. He is a pre-Socratic who started his own school. And from the objectivist perspective, he is the first villain in the history of Western thought. He is also the first enduringly influential philosopher in that his particular views are still widespread today. Nobody today is a hydromonist. <laughs> but there are all sorts of Heraclitians wandering around. <coughs> Heraclitus flourished about 500 BC. Uh, we have about 130 fragments and uh, they are so obscure that even in the ancient world, he had the nickname The Dark. <laughs> because uh, 
he was wont to deliver aphoristic, cryptic uh, utterances without uh, explanation, sort of oracular. Now, the essence of Heraclitus's views, on which I want to pause for a few minutes because of his importance, are an attack on what Aristotle later defined as the basic laws of logic. Now, obviously, he could not have attacked the laws of logic explicitly because the laws of logic were not even known until the 4th century BC when Aristotle defined them. But in retrospect, we can say that the essence of what Heraclitus was getting at and what all of his followers promptly made explicit is an all-out attack on the law of identity and the law of contradiction. Now, I assume you're familiar with those laws from objectivist literature. So I'll just say them in a word and explain their nature and importance properly when we get to Aristotle. But in a word, the law of identity is the simple view that everything which is, is what it is. Everything which exists possesses a nature, possesses an identity. It is something and is nothing else. A is A. And the law of contradiction, a corollary of the law of identity says, well, then if things are what they are, a thing is not what it isn't. Uh, nothing can be A and non-A at the same time and in the same respect. If you are six feet tall, you're six feet tall. You can't also be not six feet tall. You might grow, but at a given time. You can only be six feet tall. You might cut off your legs, but at a given time, and so on and so on. Now, Aristotle claimed that these laws were the basis of all logical reasoning, the basis of science, the basis of sanity. And uh, you would certainly, I think, have enough knowledge from objectivism to see why Aristotle would say that. Heraclitus's point is that these laws are out. As I say, not explicitly he didn't say that, but that's the meaning. Now, why? Well, he said, everybody is so interested in change. I propose to show that the phenomenon of change is incompatible with these laws of logic. Or put it another way, the phenomenon of change requires the existence of contradictions, requires things which are and are not at the same time. Well, if so, we'd like to know how. Now, I'll use the same example that I used of the match, and this time derive Heraclitus's conclusion from it. Again, obviously, he did not use this example. I'm going to put this match now through a process of change and ask you to observe it closely. And at a certain point, we'll see if we can show from Heraclitus's point of view why it ends up being contradictory. Now, I've just plucked this match. This is still the same match that I had a second ago. It's still the same match, right? I mean, I didn't take the original match and throw it away and substitute a new match. That would be substitution, but I didn't do that. I still have the same match. All right, this is still the same match. I'm now going to uh, make it go through a process of change. Still the same. All right. Here's a process of change now. All right. Now, is this still the same match? Obviously, it is. Still the same match. I didn't substitute another one. But it obviously is not the same match because it has changed. The tip is now hot, and it used to be cold, and it's now black, and it used to be white, and so on and so on. Says Heraclitus, this match is therefore the same as it was at the beginning, and yet it has changed. It is not the same as it was at the beginning. At the same time, namely after the change, it is what it was, 
But it is not what it was. It is and is not. It's the same and not the same. It's A and not A at the same time, which is a contradiction. Now, could we give another example? Oh, yes. Heraclitus can give all sorts. For instance, take any one of you. Now, remember the little baby that was born 20, 40, whatever years ago? Are you the same as that little baby? The same age? Well, obviously, yes, you are. I mean, we didn't take that little baby and grind him up in a meat grinder and bring in somebody new. You are it. <laughs> we didn't substitute. You are the same. On the other hand, what in the world is the same about you? Now, as the Heraclitians will say, your mental content is certainly completely different. Your values, ideas, and so on. According to certain biologists, every cell in your body changes every seven years, so there's nothing physically left the same. So you're completely different mentally and physically, and yet you're obviously the same. You're the same, and you're not the same. You're A, and you're not A. Now, if you want it applied to Thales, the way Heraclitus himself seemed to argue is like this. Everything is water, Thales says. Well, okay. Then after a change, the water is still water. But since it's changed, it isn't water anymore. So it is, and it isn't. In other words, we can generalize. Wherever there is change, at the end of the change, we have the same thing. That's involved in it being change rather than substitution. But wherever there is change, at the end of the change, we have a different thing, because that's inherent in it changing. Therefore, at the end of the change, we have the same and not the same thing, and therefore change necessarily involves a contradiction. But Change is the most obvious fact there is. No one could possibly deny it. The only conclusion can be the world is riddled with contradictions. The world is filled with things which are and are not. In fact, we can put it even better. The world is filled with things which are and are not what they were and were not, and what they will and will not become. As one commentator summarizes Heraclitus's view, quote, reality's essential nature lies in being both the same as itself and different from itself. For in order to change, a thing must become different from itself. If it remains the same as itself, it hasn't changed. But also after it has changed, it must still be the same thing. Otherwise, there has been no change, but simply the substitution of one object for another. A changing thing, then, is an identity of opposites. It both is and is not what it was and what it will be." Unquote. Now, you may think that that is a primitive viewpoint. That is obviously got a flaw in it, even if you might not know right offhand what it is, but that there is something obviously wrong with it and that surely no one after the development of modern science and Aristotelian logic and so on could ever have been taken in by that. So I'll take one minute out of our packed schedule to read you a quotation. Who said the following? Quote, the law of contradiction is afflicted with falsity. It says nothing can both be and not be, but anything that can change defies it. It can both be and not be with the utmost ease, unquote. Now that is not Heraclitus. That is F.C.S. Schiller one of the leading American pragmatists who taught for many, many years in the 20th century at the University of Southern California. 
Or if you want another one who said this, quote, life consists before all just in this, that a living creature is at each moment itself and yet something else. Life is therefore also a contradiction present in processes, continually occurring and solving itself. And as soon as the contradiction ceases, life also ceases and death steps in, unquote. Pure Heraclitus applied to life. That's Frederick Engels, the sidekick of Karl Marx. And what the Marxists made uh, is essentially a three-step waltz out of Heraclitus's viewpoint. <laughs> but we won't cover that in this course. Now, as to what is wrong with this, think about it. Uh, I'm going to leave it for Aristotle, who took care of it definitively, so if you don't figure out an answer to it by then, you'll be sure to get it then. Let's go on to Heraclitus' next point. Now he took change very seriously. On to his second point now. Everybody at this time, as you know, was looking for the world stuff, the one in the many. Heraclitus looked like everybody else. But he said, I couldn't find anything that was everywhere. Couldn't be water, because there are things which aren't water. And the same reason it couldn't be earth, and it couldn't be air, and so on. There is, he said, only one thing that I can find everywhere, without any exception. And that is the process of change itself. Everything is changing, slow or fast, but at least everything is changing. Therefore, he said, if we really want to know the key to reality, if we want the metaphysical phenomenon, of course, he didn't use those words, the essence of reality is change. That is the metaphysical uh, essence. Now, the word that he used is becoming, usually spelled with a capital B, becoming. Everything is becoming, changing, evolving, developing, in process. Now, since he made this metaphysical, it follows that it applied to everything, not just to sticks and stones, but sealing wax and kings and the whole works. And therefore, Heraclitus took the view that everything is changing in every respect, at every instant. Change governs everything. And therefore, nothing remains the same for two consecutive instants in any respect. Now his famous sentence illustrating this is, you can't step into the same river twice, for fresh waters are always flowing in. Now that for him is the paradigm, the example of reality. You try to put your foot in it the next time, it's different, it's changed, and everything is like that. Now there are many obvious examples of change to which he could appeal, landslides, volcanoes, earthquakes, biological growth, uh, the slow changes of erosion, and so on. But you might ask, well, what would a follower of Heraclitus do with such a thing as this lecture? Now, this seems the most peaceful, quiet, motionless, unchanging thing you could ask for. It just sits there. What's happening? Well, Heraclitus might have personally have had a little difficulty with it, but his followers don't bat an eye when you give them an example of that sort. Because they say, well, uh, looked at from your crude human senses, it looks like it is motionless. But if you could see it as modern science reveals it to us, you would see that this table is a holocaust of activity. 
because all sorts of subatomic particles busily racing off and onto it. All the boundary interchanges. And there are electric charges coursing through it and energy pulsations and cosmic rays and you can, you know, get any cheap science fiction and put in whatever you want there. The idea being that actually this table is a whirl of activity, this lecture, and it simply is the crudeness of human senses that makes this activity undetectable to us. But that simply is the defect of our senses. We can therefore, however, confidently generalize and say that everything, even the most apparently stationary things, are constantly changed. Now from this point, Heraclitus drew a momentously important consequence. He drew the consequence that there are no things at all. No entities. Now an entity means essentially a thing. For example, a table, a person, a mountain, a cigarette, a plant. Now to the normal person, it seems blatantly obvious that there are all kinds of things, all kinds of entities. But Heraclitus observed that if you accept his principle, that everything is changing in every respect, at every instant, there are no entities. Now, how does this follow? Well, in essence, he says, try and find me an entity. In reality, remember, which is constantly changing. You point to this lectern and say, there it is. But you no sooner got the it out, the T is still being pronounced, and it's gone completely, the lectern. It's vanished in the flux. It's completely different from what it was. Nothing stands still for one instant. Therefore, try to find something and say, there's a thing. And you just get to that and the thing is gone. <laughs> and therefore, Heraclitus summarized in two famous aphorisms, which are two of his fragments. Nothing is, everything is becoming is surely a paradoxical utterance. And the other famous one is panta re, in other words, everything flows and nothing abides. Everything flows and nothing abides. Now, uh, some of you have heard me read from a commentator who actually makes this point clear. And says the only time I've ever found uh, this particular point made unequivocally clear, I want to take a moment to read you a fairly lengthy passage from one historian who outdid himself in the presentation of this point. Uh, and since it's a very important point, hear him uh, on this point. He's a modern commentator summarizing Heraclitus' view. Uh, I could not equal this level of clarity on this point. Quote, all things flow. No man can ever step twice into the same river. How could he? The second time he tried to step, new waters would have flowed down from upstream. The waters would not be the same. Neither would the bed and the banks be the same, for the constant erosion would have changed them too. And if the river is the water, the bed and the banks, the river is not the same river. Strictly speaking, there is no river. When people talk about a river, they suppose that a name applies to something that will remain there for a time at least. But the river remains there no time at all. It has changed while you pronounce its name. There is no river. Worse yet, 
you cannot step into the same river twice because you are not there twice. <laughs> you too change. And the person who stepped the first time no longer exists to step the second time. Persons do not exist. <laughs> when anyone says that something exists, the meaning is that that something does not change, at least for a short time. An object that is real must be an object that stands still. Suppose a clever sculptor takes a lump of children's modeling clay and begins to work it rapidly. It shortly takes on the appearance of the child's teddy bear. And if the sculptor should stop, we could call it a teddy bear. But he doesn't stop. His nimble fingers keep working, and the momentary bear turns into a small statue of Zeus, only quickly to disappear into the form of the Empire State Building. Well, what is it, you ask? The answer is not that it's a bear, or a god, or a building. Under these circumstances, all we could say is that it's modeling clay. And we could call it clay because the clay remains the same throughout the changes. But if the clay itself never remained the same, if it changed from clay to wax to paper mache and so on and never stopped changing, we could call it nothing. Nothing. That is, it does not exist. It is unreal. Unquote. Nothing is. Everything is becoming. Change is the world stuff. Now this sort of philosophy is called a process philosophy because it holds that process, activity, motion, change is reality. Now do not take this superficially to mean merely that he thinks a lot of things are happening in the world. That a lot of things are happening in the world is not a philosophic viewpoint. That is a Reader's Digest homily. <laughs> the Heraclitian view is that all that exists is change. A stream of shifting, restless, transitory, seething, boiling, bubbling, melting, fusing, swirling activity, riddled with contradictions, as though the whole universe were plunged in a kind of cosmic mixmaster and just simply flowed in all directions. And of course, didn't flow because, you know. <laughs> Now Heraclitus himself, apparently in an attempt to uh, get a metaphor to capture this, picked on fire. Because fire was the closest he seemed to be able to get to the idea of motion without an entity. You know, the tongue's leaping and darting, and yet there's nothing solid there to get a hold of. It seems to be like the visual embodiment of pure motion. And therefore, in that terminology, he said, the world stuff is fire. But he did not mean by fire any kind of material substance but uh, rather sheer process or activity. Now I may point out that Heraclitus had a follower, many, many, but one in the, in the ancient world, named Cratylus, C-R-A-T-Y-L-U-S. I didn't take down his dates, but he was a disciple of Heraclitus and a teacher of Plato, so he's between the two. And he drew a apparently perfectly obvious conclusion from this principle. He stopped talking on principle. <laughs> he took the view that no one should ever speak. <laughs> on the grounds that there 
there's no way to give words meaning. Because the only way you can give words meaning is by giving them a referent, and there's nothing for words to refer to. If you try to say lectern, by the time you say lek, it's gone. And therefore, words are simply noise. And a respectable man does not utter noise. According to Aristotle, from whom we learn about this, Cratylus, at a certain point in his conversion, therefore stopped speaking and simply wagged his finger when he was hungry, <laughs> presumably beckoning the non-Heraclitians to bring him food. <laughs> now, we will see Aristotle's answer to this point also when we get there. So much for Heraclitus's fragments dealing with metaphysics. And now, one last issue in connection with Heraclitus of an epistemological sort. He is the first man in the history of philosophy to regard the senses as invalid. Uh, the reason is very simple. By the evidence of our senses, it appears that there are permanent, motionless, unchanging things. And yet, he says, we know uh, that that's not true. Uh, we know that uh, everything is changing, and so we simply must say that our senses are deceptive. They're invalid. They are simply too gross to detect the degree of change that is actually taking place. Sometimes his followers uh, say that the change which is taking place is analogous to letting water into a bathtub via one pipe and out via another at the same rate so that uh, an unwary spectator looking at the surface will say no change is taking place because in fact two opposite changes are taking place and cancelling each other out. And sometimes they use other equally equivalent examples or uh, caliber arguments to account for the appearance of permanence. But in any event, their viewpoint is we have shown by reason that reality is filled with nothing but change and therefore we reject the senses. Therefore, an earth-shakingly important distinction is implicit in Heraclitus. The distinction between two realms, reality and appearance. Reality is that which really exists. In Heraclitus' view, it's a mass of change. By the way, his view is, his reality is very often referred to as a Heraclitian flux, that being a way of describing nothing but change which is riddled with contradictions of the side. So there's reality, and on the other hand, there's the world as it appears to us, the world that the Greeks called the world of appearance. Reality is known by reason. Reason apart from the senses. Reason in, contra in contradiction to the senses. And the world of appearances is the world as given us by the deceptive senses. Now this duality between reality and appearance and its corresponding epistemological duality of reason versus the senses runs all through Greek philosophy with one or two exceptions. And Heraclitus is the first in which you find it. Anyone who subscribes to this view and who says that reason is what we should follow, reason in this sense of the term, reason as opposed to the senses, is called philosophically a rationalist. And therefore Heraclitus can be regarded as the first Greek rationalist. Now, that's obviously not reason in any objectivist or Aristotelian sense of the term, but that's the way the terms are used. You will see that Plato, of course, is a rationalist in this sense also. 
Now, in order to be fully fair to the historical Heraclitus, I would like to point out that he himself believed, quite inconsistently with the rest of his philosophy, that change was actually orderly, lawful, intelligible. He was, in fact, one of the earliest formulators of the view that the events in the world occur according to law and can be understood by the human mind. He thought there was a law of change governing all the particular changes. Now, for his views on this question, I refer you to a history text. But he was, in this respect, and I say this out of fairness, a good rational Greek in this respect. The Greeks, almost without exception, and no matter how awful they became, uh, always, almost without exception, had something good to say. It's only since Christianity took over that you have philosophers that are black from top to bottom. But the Greeks almost always have something good, and that's true even of Heraclitus. Uh, unfortunately, the good element in him was not nearly as influential as his flux uh, uh, side. Now, I don't think I have to point out to you the prevalence of Heraclitianism today. Anybody who says it's a changing world and uses that in anything other than an utterly innocuous sense is a Heraclitian. Anybody who says there are no absolutes, everything is relative, is a full-fledged orthodox Heraclitian. Because absolute in such a context means invariant, unchanging in time or place, something which holds for all times and places. And of course, for Heraclitus, there is no such thing. There are no absolutes. If it's true, it won't be true tomorrow, and so on. And of course, the same kind of relativism will be generated not only for knowledge in general, but for ethics and value theory in particular. There'll be no absolutes in ethics any more than in anything else, a viewpoint at which Heraclitus himself actually hinted, but simply hinted in one of his fragments that ethical relativism is the conclusion to draw. If you ever found anybody who equates old-fashioned with false, that is Heraclitianism at work. The idea being, to take an example that I hear frequently, the American Constitution, for instance, must be wrong. Why? Well, it was formulated in the 18th century. So, well, now it's the 20th century. Period. Now, that argument is pure Heraclitus. If the person attempted to say, in the intervening years there have been changes and so on, well, that would be one thing. Specific changes that require a specific change. He'd be wrong, but at least that would be a different argument. But if he simply says, time has passed, and the 18th century can't be applicable in the 20th, why can't it? Because everything flows and nothing abides, and that is Heraclitus. Most skeptics base themselves partly on Heraclitus. How can you say that you know that such and such is really true? Maybe yesterday it was true, but how do you know about tomorrow? Everything changes. Everything is becoming. Dewey says at one point, John Dewey, that Aristotle's logic must be no good because it's worked for so long. <laughs> we must need a new one. Now, as to uh, what it would be like to live in the Heraclitian world, well, of course, physically you don't and you can't. But you can get a good taste of it, unless you're very fortunate, in your social existence. Because most people, to some extent, live in a Heraclitian world socially. A great many children live in that kind of world, thanks to the wanton irrationality of their parents. 
whose behavior is characterized by constant switching and swimming so that nothing ever holds true from one moment to the next, and by constant contradictions. That is the perfect recipe for the Heraclitian world. Most citizens, in relation to the government of a mixed economy, live in exactly that uh, Heraclitian world. And if you want a kind of perfect example, most businessmen, uh, in regard to the antitrust laws, uh, live in an absolutely clear-cut textbook Heraclitian world. Because uh, what are their complaints about the antitrust uh, laws? One is, everything flows and nothing abides. Interpretations change from moment to moment, and you never know what's coming next. And the other is, everything in that world is and isn't. Is competition good? Yes, of course, because monopoly is bad. Is competition good? No, of course, because the efficient will then take away the markets of the inefficient. It is and it isn't. Now that is Heraclitianism, and you see where it's getting us. If you want a marvelous portrayal of it, I recall, remind you and suggest that you reread the scene in Atlas Shrugged between Cheryl and Dagny, where uh, Cheryl comes at the climactic part in her relation with Taggart and uh, saying that everything is switching, everything is swimming, everything is changing, and she can't endure it or understand it. And Dagny says, uh, tells her what she needs to know in essence and tells her that there have been philosophers working for centuries to bring about just that state. Well, the first and most influential of the philosophers that she refers to in this scene is Heraclitus. All right, let us take our break here. Now let us turn to a philosopher who flourished about 20 years after uh, Heraclitus, about 480 BC, and who represents a diametric opposite viewpoint, Parmenides, P-A-R-M-E-N-I-D-E-S. Parmenides comes from the town of Elia, E-L-E-A, and so his philosophy is frequently referred to as Eliaticism, or the Eliatic philosophy. <clears throat> Parmenides is the first, and judging by the fragments that we have, to support his convictions with reasoned argument. The first, uh, we have a connected whole poem of his extant, and he does not simply announce in Heraclitus's oracular fashion his conclusions, but lets us in on the actual reasoning that he adopted. He is profoundly opposed to Heraclitus's view, to the view that everything is an identity of opposites, or that nothing is, everything is becoming. Uh, his entire philosophy derives from one basic principle, which I will give you in my own words, but the substance of it is his uh, principle. What is, is, and what is not, is not. And what is not can neither be nor be thought about. I repeat that because that is the essence of Parmenides. What is, is, and what is not, is not. And what is not can neither be nor be thought about. Now, if you want to hear Parmenides' own formulations of this, I'll quote you from some of his fragments. Quote from Parmenides. Come now, I will tell thee, and do thou hearken to my saying, and carry it away. 
the only two ways of search that can be thought of. The first, namely, that what is, is, and that it is impossible for it not to be, is the way of belief, for truth is its companion. The other, namely, that what is, is not, that I tell thee is a path that none can learn of at all. For thou canst not know what is not, that is impossible, nor utter it. Unquote. Now, as you gather, that is an unmitigated repudiation of Heraclitus. Heraclitus says everything is and isn't. And Parmenides says absolutely not. If it is, it isn't. If it isn't, it isn't. What is, is, and what isn't, isn't. In regard to the Heraclitians, he has very pointed words. He refers to them in one fragment, quote, as mortals knowing not who wander two-faced. Helplessness guides the wandering thought in their breasts, and they are borne along stupefied like men deaf and blind. Undiscerning crowds who hold that it is and is not uh, the same and not the same, and that all things travel in opposite directions. Unquote. In other words, out with the Heraclitians. And one more fragment from him. For this shall never be proved, that the things that are not are. And do thou restrain thy thought from this way of inquiry. Unquote. Now what does it mean, his basic principle? Well, it is, of course, the earliest formulation in the history of thought of what Ayn Rand in Galt's speech formulates as existence exists. And its meaning is the same. And therefore, it includes the following elements. First, there is a reality, which he refers to as what is, that which exists. Reality exists, and only reality exists. What is, is, and only what is, is. What is not, is not. And another point implicit. What is not can never be thought about. In other words, all thought must be thought about existence, about what is. It is impossible, according to Parmenides, ever to think about what is not, or to know what is not, or to have any cognitive relation of any kind to what is not. Now, if you doubt this, perform a mental experiment right now. Try. I want you for a second to think about nothing. Now, I don't mean the letters N-O-T-H, because that's something. And I don't mean a black wall, that's something. I mean nothing. Absolutely nothing, what is not. Okay, go ahead and have a thought. <laughs> now, you see, you cannot do it, because as soon as you think, you think about something. You think about what is. And thus, Parmenides' famous line, thou canst not know nor utter what is not. It is simply empty. There is no what is not, and therefore you can't think about it. And this, of course, is the view that ultimately appears in Galt's speech as the, in the develop, full developed philosophy as the view that consciousness is the faculty of perceiving that which exists. In this sense, the earliest source of these crucial ideas are Parmenides. And he is therefore an extremely important, and in this respect, an extremely good philosopher. 
We can put his viewpoint another way in order to prepare ourselves for the conclusions, the consequences that he derived from. If thought is always about reality, always about what is, then it is untenable and invalid ever to hold a concept of sheer non-existence. In other words, of what is not. Because that would be a concept of nothing. In other words, it would be no concept. His key point in this respect is, to put it in a sort of funny way, but this is really the essence of it, there is no nothing. There is only somethings. And the thought about nothing is therefore not a thought about anything. It's not a thought at all. All concepts must be formed within existence and referred to existence. And therefore, any theory or any philosophic position which at any point requires a concept of sheer nothing, of non-existence, according to Parmenides, is invalid on that grounds and must be dismissed right away. Now, on this basis, Parmenides drew a number of systematic deductions. Here they are. Number one, the universe must be uncreated. Could never have come into existence. Why? Well, if there was an origin, a beginning to what is, then what existed before? Well, if it wasn't what is, it had to be what is not. But what is not, is not. There is no nothing. And therefore, there could never have been a state of nothing preceding the state of something. In other words, the universe must always have existed. It could not have been created. So much for the religious view. Now, I may say that on the basis of this reasoning, no Greek philosopher ever believed the universe was created out of nothing. That is a distinctively and exclusively Jewish Christian doctrine, never accepted by the most mystical Greeks on the basis of Parmenides' principle. Secondly, in the other direction, the universe must be indestructible. It could never go out of existence, because if it went out of existence, meaning by the universe, of course, everything which is, what would be left? What is not? But what is not is not and can never be. And therefore, the universe must be indestructible. It always will exist. Now, if you put these two points together, we can say that according to Parmenides, the universe is therefore eternal. It has no beginning and no end. Third point, focusing now within the universe. Can there be such a thing as a vacuum, as an empty space, completely empty now, a real little zero inside uh, the physical world. To which Parmenides answers, absolutely not. What is not is not. All there is is what is. And therefore, there's no such thing as a real vacuum. Uh, this was later came to be expressed in Latin. The universe is a plenum, P-L-E-N-U-M, which means it is solidly packed. The actual word means full. It's completely full. There's no little holes in it, no little spaces, no little nothings. It's one big slab of stuff. Huge ball of tightly packed matter. Now, for other reasons which are irrelevant, 
he happened to believe that it had the shape of a sphere, apparently because he thought there was no good reason why it should bulge in one direction and not the other. Uh, but that's beside the point. Well, uh, so far, I've given you several of his deductions. His principle, what is, is, is really the basic law of logic, and in that sense he's sometimes called the father of logic, although that's pretty indirect because he didn't know that it had anything to do with thinking. Um, as a, as a principle of guiding thinking. He certainly launched an all-out attack on Heraclitus and raised hell with religion. So he's made a good start. But uh, Parmenides drew another deduction from his basic principle, which in his opinion was just as obvious as all the preceding ones. And that's where all the trouble comes in. He drew as a fourth conclusion the idea that change is impossible. Change of any kind. Motion, alteration, occurrence of any kind. And therefore, according to his viewpoint, there is no such thing as talking, moving, writing, swimming, planets orbiting the sun. All of that is a gigantic illusion. Now, why? How did he draw such a conclusion? Well, take a simple example of change, and to vary it, I won't make it to match. Let's take a seed growing into a flower. Now, at the beginning of the change, at the beginning, the seed represents what is. What about the flower at the beginning? Flower is not. At the end of the change, what happened to the seed? It's gone. It's what is not. What happened to the flower? Well, of course, it's now there. It's what is. And that, of course, is true in every change. Something goes away and something comes to be. What does it mean then? Change is a double violation, he concluded, of his principle. Every change is a simultaneous passage from what is to what is not and from the other aspect, from what is not to what is. But there is no what is not, and you can't think about what is not, and therefore, out. Change, according to him, is just as irrational as the idea of the universe being created or going out of existence. It involves reference to what is not, and what is not is not. Therefore, he concluded, there is no change at all. The world is completely motionless in every respect. Now you see here that there is a sense in which he is in complete agreement with Heraclitus. Both of them agree with the following crucial viewpoint. Change implies a contradiction. Change implies a violation of logic. Heraclitus from the aspect that at the end of the change the thing is and isn't what it was, and Parmenides from the aspect that at the end of the change you have what is not becoming what is and vice versa, and that's a contradiction since what is not is not. Now, given this common premise, they of course take diametrically opposite views. Parmenides, uh, Heraclitus says, change is obvious, therefore to hell with logic. Parmenides says, logic is obvious, therefore to hell with change. 
but the common denominator is you have to make your choice. It's either logic or change, either identity or change. Now, just to make it a little worse, the two things I said that the Greeks were primarily concerned with at this early stage was change and multiplicity. Well, having denied change, Parmenides went on with apparently equal consistency to deny multiplicity. There is no multiplicity. There are no variety of things. Why? Well, he, like everybody at this early period, was a monist. And remember, a monist means somebody who believes there's only one stuff which makes up the world. But in addition, he believes that the world is a planum, solidly packed. There are no spaces. Well, then he asked, what in the world would make one thing different from anything else? How would you draw a line and say, here's one thing and here's another? The world is one solid, undifferentiated slab of one stuff which has no spaces between it. So there's nothing to separate one thing from another thing. We have to therefore say that multiplicity is an illusion. The world is just a hunk of undifferentiated stuff. There's nothing to distinguish one part from the other. Again, there are no entities. Or putting it another way, there's just one entity. Everything. Which he called the one, and you can see why. See, it's no longer the one in the many, because the many are gone now. It's just the one. Now that, uh, believe it or not, is the ancestor of the Christian God. By several transmutations and permutations, Parmenides I became the God of Christianity, but it took quite a while for it to happen. So the world is simply a motionless, changeless, undifferentiated ball of tightly packed matter. Now, needless to say, this is not the way it appears to our senses. It appears as though there is multiplicity. It appears as though there is change. What is Parmenides' answer? Same as Heraclitus. The senses are deceptive. They give us only the world of appearances, which is not true reality. True reality is the motionless one. And it is arrived at by logic, not by the senses, by reason as he interpreted reason. And therefore, again, we have rationalism epistemologically. Parmenides, like Heraclitus, only coming to the opposite conclusion. What is wrong with his reasoning? Again, I'll wait till Aristotle, because one of Aristotle's main assignments in metaphysics was to answer Heraclitus and answer Parmenides. And to do so, Aristotle carved out certain concepts which he originated, which had never existed before, uh, and which uh, we use to this day. And he said those were the only concepts by reference to which we could answer Heraclitus, uh, Parmenides. So we'll see when we get to Aristotle. Now you see that people are in a very dreadful position philosophically now. We have a catastrophe almost at the very outset of Western philosophy. One philosopher with an array of arguments that seemed persuasive at the time to prove that everything is changed and there are no things. Another philosopher with an array of arguments which seem convincing to prove that nothing changes and there's only the motionless one. What are we going to do to reconcile these two philosophers, to take their arguments and somehow make sense of it all? That was the task of subsequent philosophy, never properly answered till the time of Aristotle. Now we haven't finished with Parmenides, though, because he had a famous follower, namely Zeno, Z-E-N-O, 
and he lived around between 490 and 430 BC. And he is famous for devising a series of paradoxes which purport to prove two things. Some of them purport to prove that motion is impossible, thus carrying out Parmenides' principle. And some of them purport to prove, uh, one in particular, that multiplicity is impossible. Now I'm going to give you one of each. Uh, they all involve the same kind of reasoning, only sometimes it's more obvious and sometimes not. And again, I'm not going to answer them tonight because Aristotle devoted his attention to answering them and in the process said some very valuable things about the nature of infinity. I'll just present to you two of Zeno's paradoxes and you can get an idea what a dreadful position people were in at the time because they couldn't answer Zeno and they knew something had to be wrong. Well, his most simple one about motion is that it's impossible to cross a room. Why is it impossible to cross a room? Well, consider, <coughs> to cross a room, you first of all have to cross half of it. But to cross half of it, first of all have to cross half of that, a quarter of it, in other words. And to cross that, you first of all have to cross half of it, an eighth, and of course first a sixteenth and so on. Now he asks, how many times can a distance be subdivided? And his answer was, there's no end. If you say one zillionth of the distance, well, there's always one half zillionth of the distance. You can divide without end. In other words, you can subdivide infinitely. But how can you possibly cross an infinite number of distances, no matter how tiny, tiny they are? Because to cross any distance would take some time no matter how little. And to cross an infinite number of distances would take an infinite amount of time, but you die in 40 or 50 or 60 years. And therefore you obviously couldn't cross the, a room, or any distance for that matter. And therefore motion is an illusion. Now this would apply to the motion of his tongue in uttering the argument. His tongue to get from the upper palate to the lower has to cross half the distance and so on and so on. <laughs> But uh, that's his viewpoint. There are other trickier ones, but they all involve the same idea. You see what you can do with that for the next three or four weeks. Now, uh, one of his paradoxes on multiplicity. Multiplicity is the view that the world consists of a number of things. For instance, you, and you, and you, and this, or you can take it on the level of atoms if you want. Or on the level of galaxies. Doesn't make any difference to the argument. Now, Zeno uh, is going to argue that this is impossible. The world, in other words, cannot be a whole composed of parts. It has to be one indivisible slab, not a whole comprised of parts. Now, why? Well, he says, I'll show you that the idea that the universe has parts is filled with impossible contradictions. Well, for instance, let's imagine the universe is a whole, which has many parts. And let us ask, what would the size of the universe be? How many parts does the world have? He says, according to the people who believe in such a thing as parts. 
Well, if we keep on subdividing, how many parts will the world end up having? Well, he says, obviously, it'll end up with an infinite number of parts. Because every magnitude is theoretically divisible without limit. So if we break the world up into one foot long things, we can break each of those up into two six inch things, and each of those into four threes, and those into four three inch things, and so on and so on. There's no theoretical end. So if we keep going, you have to grant that there is an infinite number of parts. And if there's an infinite number of parts, no matter how small each of them is, we must have an infinitely big universe. Because infinity times any amount is infinitely big. Thus, we reach the conclusion that if the universe consists of parts, it must be infinitely large. But now look at it another way. What will be the size of the ultimate parts, the ultimate constituents when we finally reach them? Now he says there has to be such ultimate indivisible parts, otherwise we can't talk meaningfully about the world being a whole consisting of parts. If you're going to say a whole, there has to be parts. And that means there ultimately has to be something which is no longer divisible. But now any magnitude as we've seen, is divisible. So what must be the size of the ultimate parts if they're to be even in theory indivisible? They must be zero in size. The ultimate particles or constituents of the world must have no magnitude. But if a universe has parts which have no size, what will be the size of the whole? Obviously, it won't have any size. An infinite number of zeros is still zero. So, if there is multiplicity, on the one hand, we must have an infinitely big universe which has endless parts. And on the other hand, an infinitely small universe which has sizeless parts. And that's an impossible contradiction. And therefore, the premise must be wrong. There is no multiplicity. Therefore, Parmenides was right after all. There's only the one. The universe is in principle indivisible. That's the end of it. Now, until we get to Aristotle's answer to this, and this, as you see, involves the same kind of issues pertaining to infinity and infinite subdivision that the other paradox did and all of his do. And you need a certain theory of the nature of infinity to answer it. But until we get there, if you don't know, uh, it's OK to go home. Uh, you can assume pragmatically that you are one part, and uh, your home is another, and motion between the two is possible. And how we validate that philosophically, we'll discuss in several weeks. All right, let us turn to the last pre-Socratic school that we are going to look at this evening. which is the school of Pythagoras, the Pythagorean school. Now, Pythagoras flourished about 530 BC, so technically he's actually right after Thales in order and prior to Parmenides and Heraclitus. He's about 60 years after Thales in terms of flourishing. But uh, we have no idea what Pythagoras said as distinct from his followers because of the absence of documents. So it's common simply to talk about the Pythagoreans as a school. 
and not attempt to differentiate which one was responsible for which particular idea. And I may say the Pythagoreans uh, endured right on to the very end of pagan philosophy and uh, underwent various modifications in their views. So it's common to talk about early, middle, and late Pythagoreans, but we'll hover around middle uh, uh, Pythagoreans. Now, Pythagoras founded an enormously influential school. Uh, it had overwhelming effects on Plato and, of course, therefore later on Christianity. Neither Plato nor Christianity would have been possible without Pythagoras and his school or some equivalent. Now, basically, the early Pythagoreans, at least, were a mystic sect. They lived communistically without private property. They were, in effect, a religious order or brotherhood. They were far and away the most otherworldly, the most mystic of all of the pre-Socratics. They are actually the first religious philosophers that we encounter in this course. And therefore, I have to tell you at the outset something about the religion to which they subscribed. They were not adherents of the religion of the gods of Olympus. Uh, they did not take the anthropomorphic uh, view of the gods, the polytheistic view, and so on. They represented a somewhat different, or rather take out the somewhat, an enormously different trend in Greek religion. They advocated what was called a mystery religion, which is much more religious than the Mount Olympus divinities ever dreamed of. This is really religious. It was a rabid, mystic, supernaturalist cult in the early years of a very primitive order. And there were quite a number of them. And uh, the one that the Pythagoreans subscribed to was called the Orphic Mystery Religion, O-R-P-H-I-C, with a capital O. So what did Orphicism teach? Now, Orphicism is not a philosophy. It's an oriental mystery cult imported into Greece and advocated only by a minority. It was not the dominant viewpoint. Well, the Orphics preached tenets like this. Man has two parts, a high part and a low part. The low part is the body, the high part is the soul. These two are in eternal conflict with each other. The soul is akin to God, to another dimension. Once it was a godlike creature inhabiting another superior spiritual world, but it sinned. And the result was it fell from grace and as a punishment was included in the body on this earth. The body is therefore the prison or the tomb of the soul. And uh, we are destined, each of us, to go through a series of reincarnations. At the end of our earthly span, we go, our soul goes back to the other world, and it gets its appropriate reward or punishment, depending upon its behavior. And then it comes around again, what they call the wheel of birth. Sometimes it comes up in another human body, sometimes in an animal body lives out its cycle and goes back again round and round the wheel of birth uh, until, and this was their ultimate hope, one day a soul can escape from the body and this earth permanently, reunite once and for all with God and thereby achieve true happiness and salvation. In fact, the idea was go back home. How? Do you get to do it? Well, they said you have to engage in a process they called purification. Purification. 
That's essentially a process of decontaminating the soul of any physical influences. You have to live a good life, which means essentially an ascetic life, a pleasure-denying life. Now I remind you, we are in ancient Greece, and therefore the Pythagoreans at their most ascetic are frenzied hedonists in comparison to the Christians that are yet to come. <laughs> but nevertheless, they made a start. And of course, you must also uh, engage in the rituals of the Orphic mystery religion. Now, in the early days, these rituals included something on the order of what goes on in Off-Broadway now. Uh, mass orgies, intoxication, frenzied dancing, uh, secret initiation rites, that's why they were called mystery religions. Uh, it was highly primitive, to say the least. Here is a description from one commentator. Orphicism worshipped the god Dionysus. And he uh, describes it as follows. Now, in an act of heroic self-abnegation, I will steadfastly abstain from commenting or drawing parallels to any subsequent Western religion. Quote, the god Dionysus was elaborated in the Orphic Mysteries. Originally a Thracian deity of vegetation, and particularly of the vine and wine, and of the sense of liberation from human bondage that intoxication bestows, he was worshipped in the beginning by orgiastic rites of frenzied dancing and drunkenness. Probably in the beginning his priest, in whom he was supposed to be incarnate, was sacrificed and eaten by his worshippers who thus partook of the manna or strength of their god. But before the cult entered Greece, the sacrifice of the priest had given way to that of a sacred animal, the wild bull, which now became the vehicle for communicating the divine substance of the god to his devotees. Brought down into Greece from the north, his cult became more civilized and developed a complicated theology. First begotten by Zeus from a divine mother, Persephone, he was, he, Dionysus, was slain in the form of a wild bull by the evil titans and was torn to pieces and devoured by them. But his heart was saved. This Zeus ate and begot him a second time from a human mother, Semele. She, demanding to see her divine lover face to face, was consumed by a thunderbolt. Her unborn child was preserved and placed in the thigh of Zeus, from which in the fullness of time it was brought forth and made lord of the world. The Titans also Zeus slew with a thunderbolt and formed man from their ashes. Hence man is a dual creature, a mixture of the evil substance of the Titans and of the divine substance of the god they devoured. His soul or mind is a fragment of Dionysus, his body a heritage from the Titans. Salvation consists in freeing the divine within us from the bondage of the body. This can only be accomplished by a long series of reincarnations at the end of which, if she has sufficiently purified herself, the soul may escape from the wheel of birth and rebirth and be reunited with her divine source. This purification, however, could only be effected by joining the Orphic cult, assisting at its mysteries, and following its rule of life." Unquote. Now this, historically, philosophically, is the primary source of the soul-body opposition in Western civilization. No better argument for that opposition has ever been put forth. <laughs> now, I read recently that something like 50% of uh, women on the continent of Europe 
suffer from some type of sexual frigidity, partly caused by the feeling that sex is vulgar and materialistic. Uh, you know how many businessmen feel guilty because uh, they're after money and they're money grubbers? And how many people attack capitalism because it's simply physical? Well, if you ask the ultimate root of that view, it goes back to these tales on Dionysus, back to the Orphic. And prior to that, of course, it has a long, long history. Now, uh, the Pythagoreans subscribed to Orphicism. They believed in two different worlds, the world of God in this world, the soul-body conflict. They yearned for immortality and escape for the, on the body. They believed in reincarnation. Pythagoras is alleged, whether this is true, nobody knows, to have seen a dog being beaten one day and asked the man to stop because he recognized from the cries a friend of his from a preceding life. Now, the Orphic religion is obviously enormously primitive. And it is uh, a whole series of typical taboos. Here are a few typical ones. If you're a good Orphic, you have to obey these rules. These are, so to speak, some of the divine commandments if you're an Orphic. Uh, I'm just reading you a few. To abstain from beans. <laughs> Not to pick up what has fallen. Not to stir the fire with iron. Not to walk on highways. Not to let swallows share one's roof. When the pot is taken off the fire, not to leave the mark of it in the ashes, but to stir them together. When you rise from the bedclothes, roll them together and smooth out the impress of the body, etc. Now this commentator says, quote, it would be easy to multiply the proofs of the close connection between Pythagoreanism and primitive modes of thought, but what has been said is sufficient for our purpose, unquote, and that is certainly sufficient. Now, this sort of thing, I may say, was looked at askance by most of the Greeks. It was certainly not in the mainstream of Greek uh, religious views. It was, in effect, regarded as a lunatic fringe. The question is, how did any of this stuff get into the history of philosophy? Because this is the caliber of stuff that there was thousands and thousands of years of prior to Thales. And the answer is that Pythagoras had a scientific side to him also. He and his school. He was concerned, they were concerned with the same question as all the other uh, pre-Socratics. Namely, what is the nature of the universe? What is the world stuff? And in this connection, they made some valid and enormously important points. The result was that their scientific discoveries and their mystic orphicism were propagated along together as a kind of package deal. And in fact, the combination became very influential. Now I want to look at their more philosophical side. Well, they asked the question, what is the essence or nature of the universe? What is the world stuff? Is it water? Is it air? Is it fire? Is it change? No, they said. Well, now, to understand their answer, you have to know something about their special interests and achievements. The Pythagoreans were really the discoverers of mathematics in any serious way. Now, other civilizations had discovered mathematical knowledge, but the Pythagoreans were the first to discover 
that mathematics is somehow everywhere. They did a lot of work in mathematical theory. Of course, you know about the Pythagorean theorem, still call that to this day. They discovered many interesting things about the connection of mathematics to musical phenomena, a thing which was absolutely unheard of prior to their discovery of it. They discovered, for instance, that harmony in music, as distinct from noise, is based on mathematical ratios, the length of the string being plucked. Uh, they discovered that musical relations can be expressed numerically, which was a staggering discovery. And we, to this day, use mathematical terms to talk about musical relationships, like we talk about an interval of a fifth or a fourth or an octave, which means an eighth, etc. They discovered that mathematics is relevant to astronomy. They uncovered the first hints that mathematical law governs the heavens. They discovered that mathematics is somehow relevant to medicine. They had the idea that uh, physical health consists of the mathematical ratio of the various elements of the body. And that if you have just the right amount of each, you're healthy. But if one grows voraciously and destroys the right mathematical balance, well, today we would say you have cancer. They would say you're sick, you're out of harmony. You see. In a word, wherever they looked, and these are the subjects that are known at this time, astronomy, I mean, some hints of it are known, mathematics, music, medicine, they found a fact that had not been known that somehow or other the distinctive character and action of things is governed by numerical relationships, by mathematical laws, in a word, by numbers. Numbers popped up everywhere, and who would have expected it? Consequently, they did, in effect, what Thales did when he thought water was the key, or what Heraclitus did when he thought change was the key, they seized on their particular thing with avidity and proceeded to make it metaphysical. By a gigantic leap, they generalized. And they said, you want to know what the world stuff is? You want to know what all things really are? All things are numbers. That's their famous fragment. All things are numbers. Numbers are the world stuff. Now, commentators have worked for centuries to try and figure out what could this have meant. Because how can you talk about numbers? There isn't something being numbered. Suppose I point to this glass, and you ask me what is it, and I say it's six. <laughs> you say six what? How can you have a universe made of quantity without any things being quantified. Well, of course, Heraclitus has a universe of activity without any things performing it. Why shouldn't Pythagoras have his too? <laughs> but in any event, uh, commentators have struggled to try and figure out what they could have meant. Now a lot of this is speculative because there are no surviving data that would, fragments or documents that would establish it definitely. But some people point out that because we're at such an early stage of knowledge and the Pythagoreans are so primitive, uh, they took the following view. They represented numbers by physical things. For instance, little pebbles 
arranged. Three little pebbles would be three, and six little pebbles would be six, and so on. Or sometimes by dots, the way we have on dice. And so six for them meant six dots, or six pebbles, arranged in a certain way. In other words, they confused numbers with the physical entities which represent them, or symbolize them. And so sometimes when they said all things are numbers, they meant all things are composed of tiny physical particles. So this was like a primitive version of what later became the atomic theory. But the Pythagoreans never developed it. In part, I may say, uh, the explanation of this is simply their orphism, their errant mysticism. Now, they were the real numerological mystics, and they carried that to fantastic length that you wouldn't believe about. Justice, for instance, I believe, if I remember correctly, there was a quarrel among the Pythagoreans as to whether justice was four or nine. <laughs> See, the idea is it had to be a square number because it had to return equal for equal, but whether it was two times two or three times three, they hadn't decided. Marriage was five, and I once heard the explanation but I can't remember it. Love is eight because love is harmony between people and the octave is a harmony. Man, I, if I remember, was 250. Plants, 360. Now this, of course, is just simply nonsense uh, and does not require deep explanation. And this is the western source of those skyscrapers I mentioned earlier that have the 13th floor blanked out. Except that isn't fair because the moderns are worse than the Pythagoreans. If the Pythagoreans thought that 13 was bad luck, they would stop the building on the 12th floor. <laughs> they wouldn't add subjectivism in and call the 13 14. Now, in part, besides these other features, there is a crucial point disguised in this primitive mystic uh, statement. And uh, the crucial point is the vital importance of mathematics in discovering the laws of the world. The vital importance of mathematics in discovering the laws of the world, in making sense of the universe. Now, today, people take this for granted. You understand that modern physics would have been impossible without the discovery that physical laws have to be formulated in mathematical terms. Well, this discovery actually develops from the Pythagoreans. They're the ones, although they didn't discover any laws, they're the ones who discovered that mathematics was the keystone. Uh, and, um, for instance, Kepler in the modern world, in the beginning of modern science, the man who discovered the first mathematical laws of planetary motion couldn't find them for years. But he was a devout Pythagorean, and he went on looking on the grounds that all things are numbers and there must be mathematical laws governing the planets, and sure enough, he found them. Uh, in this sense, modern science is in part a development of this discovery of the Pythagoreans. However, it did not bear fruit until uh, the Renaissance and when it was combined with other theories. But for our purposes, what is important is what the later Pythagoreans did to make sense out of the theory that all things are numbers. The numbers are literally the ingredients of things. They realize that's too primitive. And so they took the line that numbers or numerical relations 
somehow govern the behavior of things. Things they said are formed or behave according to numbers. And they took this in a very literal and still quite primitive sense. Now, if you consider people today saying, for instance, that the law of gravity governs the behavior of bodies. Now, you understand today that that use of the word govern is metaphorical. You don't think when you say that, that there's a disembodied law of gravity in another dimension, which says to things, so to speak, you better fall or else, uh, uh, like a king governs his subjects. But the Pythagoreans apparently did. When they said that numbers govern the things of this world, they apparently believed that there were two dimensions. This is the later Pythagoreans. A world of numbers, of numerical relations, and then this world in which we live, which was somehow formed in accordance with the world of numbers. What are the characteristics of the two worlds? Well, of course, the world of numbers can't be grasped by the senses. You can't perceive the world of numbers. You can perceive two people, but not just two. Two itself, you have to grasp by reason. And uh, on the other hand, this world is a world graspable by the senses. Another point of difference, the world of numbers is unchanging. Numbers don't change. Two and two go it makes four goes on forever without any alteration. Now, any individual, two things can come into existence, grow, decay, die, and vanish. But two as such goes on forever. Two is two, and two and two is four, and so on. In a word, the world of numbers is immutable, whereas the world in which we live is constantly changing. So we have a metaphysical dualism, two realities. And of course, the true one is the world of numbers. Now they thought, you see, that they had thereby solved the problem posed by Heraclitus and Parmenides. Because they provided one world for each. Heraclitus said, uh, true reality must be changing, constantly changing. The Pythagoreans said, okay, there is a changing world for you. In this world, you are right, everything is flowing. Parmenides said, but true reality has to be unchanging. They said, you're right too. True reality is the world of numbers. Now, this particular attempt to solve the Parmenidean Heraclitian dilemma by apportioning two worlds for one for each was picked up from the Pythagoreans by Plato uh, in a somewhat different form, as we'll see next week. In any event, the Pythagoreans uh, had now given, in effect, a philosophic grounding to their Orphic religion. They now had their heaven and earth tied in with their two philosophic worlds, the world of numbers and this world. They had a philosophic basis for their soul-body opposition. They had, so to speak, synthesized their religion with their science, and they were happy. Now, a few last points to mop up the Pythagoreans. <laughs> no, I didn't mean that pejoratively, but... One legacy in epistemology of Pythagoreanism is the view that to be true knowledge, something must be mathematical. But only mathematics qualifies as true knowledge. Now that is a common view among a certain type today. There's a type who gives off what I guess you could describe as a Pythagorean aura, not to say odor. 
Uh, and that aura is expressed in the fact that if you do not give him statements with numbers in them, he will not accept them as scientific. If you tell him, uh, for instance, uh, that human beings need uh, self-esteem, that is, quote, vague, qualitative, unscientific, inexact. But if you say they need 3.9 units of self-esteem and they need an extra 0.4 every time they commit one-eighth of an act of immorality or something, then that makes it mathematical. Now that's a legacy of the Pythagorean number fixation. In regard to ethics, of course, the major legacy left by the Pythagoreans was the mind-body, the soul-body dichotomy. Uh, which they are the founders of in Western philosophy. And the idea that the ultimate goal is to escape from the body and have the soul be pure. Now, uh, the development of that we will see in Plato, who got it from the Pythagoreans. You may ask, well, why didn't they commit suicide if they were so anxious to escape the body? And they had an answer to that. God giveth and God taketh away. In effect, you belong to God. And if you commit suicide, I'm parroting, but the idea is you're violating God's property rights. It's up to him to decide whether or not to let you come home. Well, what should you do while on earth? Well, as we say, you should purify yourself by withdrawing from the physical. Well, how are you going to do that? Now, here the Pythagoreans made a very famous observation. They distinguished three types of men who come to the Olympic Games. And I want to tell you those three because it was picked up later by Plato and became the basis of a whole theory of human psychology. Three types of men ranging in a hierarchy from the lowest to the highest. Now the lowest is the one most directly involved with the physical. The guy who comes to make money, for instance, to buy and sell popcorn. The lover of gain, the man obsessed with the almighty drachma. <laughs> That's the lowest. But above the lover of gain, there are the athletes. And they are motivated qua athlete, not by the according to the Pythagoreans, not by the desire for money, but for something somewhat more spiritual, namely honor, fame, triumph, glory. Now, they're still materialistic, to an extent, because they still want their fame and glory in this physical world. But at least they're not, so to speak, wallowing in uh, the crude physical. And so they're one rung higher. And then there is the third type, the type most detached from the physical world, the type that doesn't want money or fame, etc. The people in the stands, the spectators, who simply want to look out and see what's happening. The ones who have Thalane for Sophia, who simply want to acquire knowledge in a completely disinterested way. Now those are the ones, if they're properly disinterested, who are cut off from the physical world, and they surely are. And uh, therefore, the Pythagoreans preached the supreme importance of knowledge, but it had to be disinterested knowledge. The supreme importance of philosophy and science, but divorced entirely from any physical, practical consequences or action regarding life uh, on earth. They preached philosophy, science, knowledge as a religious right, as a right of 
purification of the soul so long as it was disinterested, non-commercial, and non-materialist. And this, of course, is the earliest severing in Western philosophy of knowledge from life. It's the idea of knowledge as an end in itself. Now, you'll see what happens to this and to the whole Pythagorean view of three types of human beings in Plato, where it develops into a full-blown psychology and ends up with the view that there should be complete communistic dictatorship. That, however, is all we're going to say th about the Pythagoreans. They are the first two-reality school that we've met in a major way. And in this sense, they are the oldest religious supernaturalistic school in Western philosophy. As we continue, we're going to trace the line from the Pythagoreans to Plato to the whole Christian axis. But all of it, including the mind-body opposition, the yearning for an otherworldly immortality, the scorn for this life on Earth, goes back originally to the Orphic Pythagoreans. All right, let's draw a line here, and next week we will continue with the founders of the atomic theory, the founders of skepticism, and then Socrates and Plato. Thank you. Second question, so I'll start with one of those. I uh, may as well start with this. How could Parmenides think of a shape for the universe? What would be outside that shape? Wouldn't the universe have to be infinite without shape? No, it would not. I agree with Parmenides on that point. If you asked him, uh, not necessarily with the idea of it being a sphere, I don't pretend to know what shape the universe has, but I agree with Parmenides, and so did Aristotle, and so on his own way did Einstein, if you want to give you a modern scientific authority, that the universe is finite and has some structure and some kind of shape. And that does not imply any uh, um, outside of the universe. The simple question to what is outside the universe is there is no outside the universe. Outside the universe is a meaningless phrase. It does not designate a locality, which is empty. It designates no locality. There is no such place as outside the universe. All that exists is the universe. Now, in asking that question, you necessarily have to project yourself as being outside the universe, and you're looking at it from the outside, and you see this big ball, and there's all the space outside. But you can't project yourself outside the universe. You can only project yourself within the universe. And therefore, from that perspective, there is no difficulty in thinking of the universe as finite, limited, shaped, but you cannot visualize its shape because to do so, you'd have to stand outside. The best I can recommend to you as a mental exercise is imagine a little dot in your mind and let it fill up from the inside out until it occupies your entire mental screen and do not try to peep beyond it. And then you've got the universe. I'll take... Uh, a uh, one from the floor. Now, you'll have to wave your hands around because I won't necessarily be able to see at that distance. Right. In the yellow, yes, Mr. Coates. Uh, what, what does shape mean then? Uh, anything I can think of that has a shape, I can stand outside and see what the shape is. Shape means the relative configuration of the constituents of the boundary. And they have a configuration relative to each other, quite independently of whether you can get outside and look at it. Let me take another written one. 
Did Oriental thought have any influence on the early Greek philosophers? To my knowledge, I, and I emphasize that I do not know a great deal about Oriental philosophy, to put it mildly. Um, Oriental philosophy was primarily influential on Pythagoreanism. I do not believe it had any significant influence on the Milesians, on Heraclitus, on Parmenides, on the Atomists, on the Sophists, uh, on Socrates. It did, of course, on Plato through Parm Pythagoras, but that's all that I know of. I'll try and take it from different areas. Yes? The universe was considered to be finite. If you predict yourself as traveling in a straight line. I get it. If you traveled in a straight line through the universe, wouldn't you have to some point come to the end, bump your head into the end of the universe and look out, and wouldn't that imply there's an outside, right? Yeah, what would be the contradiction? Well, the contradiction to that would be there is no outside the universe, and therefore, obviously, you couldn't do it. Now, if you ask me, what are the scientific laws that make it impossible for you to go straight through the universe and come out the other side, I'd have to refer you to a scientist. And uh, relativistic physics is one possibility, but I wouldn't uh, necessarily comment on that. It is very important that you distinguish clearly between philosophy and science. Philosophy can lay down the basic principles of reality, if it can prove them. And, of course, the basic principles of the scientific methodology. To that extent, it is capable of issuing, a, of, of uh, exercising a veto power in relation to science. If a scientist comes up with some theory which violates an established philosophic principle, a philosopher is entitled to show that his theory must be wrong and that the scientist better try again. However, it is not within the competence of the philosopher qua philosopher to speculate about the actual structure or laws of the physical world. If you do that, you simply become an armchair philosophizer. There is no distinctively philosophical means to do that. That has to be done by experiment and observation and is therefore outside the competence of philosophy. So I refuse on principle ever to be drawn into scientific speculations. Uh, <coughs> Why must the dualists choose one of their realities as the real one and the other as just a result of our distorted senses? Well, reality means everything that exists. So two of them would be a big problem. And therefore, they have to in some way say that the one doesn't really exist. But of course, they can't simply say it's nothing. And so they carve out the concept of appearance to give it a metaphysical half status. It sort of is. Now, uh, for a fuller dis discussion, we'll wait till Plato uh, next time. Why wouldn't the same argument Zeno used to disprove a whole of many parts apply to a whole of one part? In other words, why couldn't the one be divided infinitely? Well, but if it's divisible, it'd be more than one part. And the idea is you can call it one part if you want, but the crucial thing is it's an indivisible part. And since it's only one, it is the whole, and therefore it's senseless to talk about it as being a part. Do I have somebody near the back? If you wave them from left to right or your arms, I'll be able to see them. All right, here. Uh, is there any such thing as a vacuum, or is the universe completely Is there any such thing as a vacuum, or is the universe completely filled with matter of some sort? I agree with Parmenides. I believe his argument on this point is unanswerable. 
that there is no nothing, and consequently no such thing as a true vacuum, in other words, a true zero inhabiting uh, reality anywhere. This does not mean, however, that everything is necessarily solidly packed with matter in the form that we now know it, simply that it must be packed with something. Now, what it is that it's filled with, I do not purport to know. There used to be theories in the 19th century that the world's empty places, so-called, were filled with ether, and that the universe was solidly filled, and that ether was the medium by means of which energy traveled, action at a distance was able to take place, and so on. I believe, ultimately, some form of that theory, some form, uh, will have to be sustained on philosophic grounds. But again, I refer you to the distinction between philosophy and science. I wouldn't dream of speculating uh, what is it that is present in what we regard as a vacuum. After all, we do not know everything about the physical universe. And uh, the fact that we are able to pump out or discover areas with the absence of most matter that we now can identify does not, per se, prove the existence uh, of a vacuum. Uh, a long time ago, some of us used to use the term humorously, I may say, little stuff. And little stuff was the name we gave to that which is where nothing isn't. <laughs> but what it is, we do not purport to know. Uh, would you say that a major problem for the pre-Socratics was not really understanding the natures of time and space? For example, the problems of change and multiplicity and time and space are poorly understood today. Um, well, time and space are poorly understood by some schools of philosophy, but Aristotle gave the essentially correct view of them, so if they're poorly understood today, that per se wouldn't prove anything. Uh, as to this point, certainly the issue of time and space is relevant to Zeno's paradoxes, uh, because that brings in the question, is time and space infinitely divisible? But on reg in regard to the rest of their questions, I don't see that this is particularly a contributing factor. I think their major problem was they didn't know anything. And uh, you can hardly blame them for that. They started and they made some gigantic leaps forward in a very short time. I'll take a one from the floor. Yes, the lady. On the politics of the time, I do not know of any influence that the early Greek metaphysics had on the politics of that time. I'm not very familiar with the politics of that time. But you see, it was, as far as I can tell, it was too abstract prior to the 5th century. Now, when you get to the 5th century BC, the theories had direct influence. As you'll see, the Heraclitians and the Sophists of that period had direct political effects. And of course, Socrates had enormous influence. And Plato, in the, now going on into the fourth century, had enormous influence. But uh, when you say all things are water, you know, or all things are numbers in that form, you can't do anything with it politically. <laughs> I'm trying not to discriminate against people at the back. And I don't know if it's simply that I can't see, but I never see any hand less than the first half. So. Uh, yes. The politics of those times have an influence numbers philosophy? Did the politics have an influence on the philosophy? As so far as I know, only in that, at that period, they were freer, 
as I said, and therefore freer to look at the world and think and come up with answers. But I can't for the life of me imagine how you could correlate the kinds of views we were discussing today with specific political systems. In a general way, I oppose the idea that existential conditions determine philosophic viewpoints. I think quite the reverse is true. I'll take a written question. Oh, I have some more. Now, this one, you see, is simply too long. It would take five minutes to read it. Some of these overlap ones that have been asked. Would you elaborate on the definition of philosophy, explaining why the five main branches you included are grouped together while psychology, mathematics, etc., are omitted? Yes. There are two common denominators to the five main branches. One is the universality of their scope. And the second is their necessity as guides to human action, any human action. Philosophy is, above all else, the all-embracing subject. Metaphysics studies the entire universe, not just any one species or a subdivision, not just matter or mind or life, but everything. Epistemology does not ask, how do you acquire knowledge of physics or chemistry or astronomy or of cooking, but of everything. And the same for the other branches. Ethics does not ask, how should a tailor, a butcher, or a candle maker live, but how should any man live? How should any government be organized? How should any work of art be judged? In this sense, philosophy the essential element of all of them is that they are universal, not specialized. Which is why philosophy deals with the kind of issues that anybody can think about. It does not require specialized information uh, of one particular subcategory of reality. The other common denominator is they are all these branches that I mentioned provide indispensable guides to action. Metaphysics, of course, does not directly tell you how to live, but it gives you the precondition, the nature of reality. But every other branch tells you how to act. Epistemology says, do this if you want to know. Ethics says, do this in your choices. Politics says, do this in your government. Aesthetics says, do this in your art. And therefore, the essence of philosophy is telling man how to function, conceptually, existentially, socially, aesthetically. Now those are the two common denominators. In contrast, all the so-called special sciences, psychology, mathematics, etc., are either restricted to one subcategory of reality, like human behavior, which psychology used to describe, today describes rats, or mathematics, which is restricted to quantitative relations or whatever it happens to be, and they are not normative. They do not tell you how you should behave in any field, but simply describe the way things are. Uh, other, I see one at the back in the green. Louder, please. Why did Heraclitus not say that the law of change was the world stuff rather than the change itself? Well, first of all, he did not have a very clear idea of what the law of change consisted of. It was pretty much to the effect that there has to be a balance and change in one direction 
in the so-called upward way has to balance change in another direction in the downward way. But I think the main point is that the law of change is simply a description of how change operates and consequently is not something apart from change, although I grant you that in, in according to some commentators, the law of change is uh, reified by Heraclitus into an entity distinct from change, and many people think that it is one of the sources of the Christian God too. So you can throw that in the pot along with Parmenidean one if you want. Um, at the back in the brown, yes. By which he discovered changes? Yeah, since he invalidated the senses, by what means did he discover changes? Well, he would, of course, say by reason. But if you then asked him, well, but how does reason operate since it doesn't begin with sensory data? He would have said, I never thought of that question. <laughs> However, next week they thought of it. <laughs> and they came up with many ways by which, according to them, you could arrive at knowledge by reason without the use of the senses. One of Plato's most famous theories is specifically an attempt to answer that question. But see, we're at the very beginning. If he had thought of all the questions that his theory implied, he would have had a full-fledged system of philosophy, and we wouldn't be talking about the importance of Plato anymore, but of Heraclitus. Uh, do I recommend any history of philosophy text for this course? Well, I can recommend readings. Uh, I wouldn't want to go in great length for it, <coughs> with it, but I'd be certainly happy to recommend readings that you can do if you wish. The course doesn't presuppose them. The best introductory history of philosophy that I know is A History of Western Philosophy by W.T. Jones. Uh, it comes out in a four-volume paperback edition published by Harcourt Brace. And it covers the waterfront for complete beginners. Uh, and it is perfectly respectable. Uh, another good and much shorter one is by Gordon H. Clark called Thales to Dewey. And it is the one that I quoted from, which has that excellent summary of Heraclitus's river, uh, that it does, why it doesn't exist. Uh, the two unquestionably best histories of philosophy ever written, but uh, they are not for beginners, but they are without question the best, is uh, Emile Breyer, B-R-E-H-I-E-R, -E -E the famous French historian of philosophy, uh, who wrote an uh, enormously lucid, detailed work covering everything right until the time of his death. And that has been put out by the University of Chicago Press in a whole series of paperbacks. And, of course, my own personal favorite, uh, Wilhelm Windelbond, a History of Philosophy. And not a History of Ancient Philosophy, that's a different one of his, which is good, but it's not the one I have in mind, which I regard as a truly superlative history of philosophy. And I uh, would say without any doubt that I learned more history of philosophy from Windelbahn than all the rest put together. But it is difficult reading, not because it's unclear, but because it's enormously compressed. And uh, I averaged the first time around about 45 minutes for one side of a page to follow it. Um, if you want to do any readings in uh, particular periods. There are many good histories simply of ancient philosophy, which are much more detailed. I think offhand of Joseph Owen's A History of Ancient Western Philosophy, Appleton Century, a very scholarly detail. There is the massive 
multi-volume, thick multi-volume work by Guthrie. Uh, the last I heard, he had three volumes out on the pre-Socratics alone, I think. Uh, and that will really tell you everything uh, if you have that kind of passionate interest in it. Uh, uh, there are all sorts of anthologies which give you little excerpts, fairly generous excerpts, of any philosopher or all of them. That's wide open. Uh, there are many works on the pre-Socratics, but in, unless you ask me for them particularly, I wouldn't uh, urge you to read any particular one of them unless you have a special interest. Uh, you should certainly, if you want to do any reading, read some of Plato's famous dialogues. They're all collected in one volume called The Collected Dialogues of Plato, edited by Hamilton and Cairns, and that's uh, Pantheon Books, and that's a one-volume edition of everything of Plato's. Uh, I don't think it's need, we need go on. There's uh, Richard McKeon's edition of the works of Aristotle, or you can get the whole 12-volume Oxford series if you want. And uh, if you want to read The Confessions of St. Augustine, the best translation is by Pine Coffin. Uh, <laughs> there's also the Pocket Aquinas, if you want, edited by Father Copleston. But uh, that should hold you for a while. Any others from the floor? I'm trying to get different people uh, on the outside, yes. When I say that which is not is not, is that a principle about nothing? No, it's a principle denying nothing. It's a principle saying you cannot have principles about nothing because there is no nothing. So it is not about nothing. It is indirectly about something. It tells you one thing about something. Namely, something is all there is. Yes. So far as I know, Zeno originated the implications of the paradoxes that he put forth. There was no work done on the nature of infinity, time, or space at this time. In the white. Yeah. The existence of a vacuum? Yeah. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Okay, uh, is it possible to think about nothing when also thinking about something, namely thinking of a vacuum as, say, an area of nothing surrounded by something? Can you think of nothing if you think of it in relation to something? Well, I would say in one sense, yes, you can, but not in the example you use. I believe Parmenides' argument, and I won't here repeat it, is valid in regard to vacuums. And therefore, I wouldn't take that as an example of your point. But there is a sense, I would say, speaking for myself now, not for Parmenides, in which you can think of nothing in a qualified or relative sense in relation to something. For instance, I can say perfectly meaningfully, I have nothing in my pocket. Now, I obviously mean in relation to some specific type of existence. I have no money, or no peaches, or no bananas, or whatever it happens to be. 
and uh, by what reference to whatever form of existence is the standard, I can refer to the absence of that form of existence. In that relative limited sense, you can talk about nothing. But Parmenides was talking about the absolute nothing. Not the absence of a particular type of something, but the sheer zero. And in that sense, I think he is correct. Now, I don't want to end on the note of nothing. So we have one minute if I can get a question about something. Someone who has not asked one before. All right, at the front, yes. Uh, you say that one of the difficulties of the ancient Greek uh, philosophers was their failure to differentiate in uh, their concern with the problem of change is their failure to differentiate between various kinds of change and have to deal with changes. What kinds of change did you have in mind? You mean like locomotion versus uh, growth and so on? Well, you're asking me, what I say, just to repeat that one of the problems of the early philosophers was their failure to differentiate various kinds of change. Well, certainly they didn't differentiate. And certainly it was a major step forward when Plato and Aristotle began to classify and say there's change of place, locomotion, and change of substance, when a thing comes into existence as the flower versus the seed, and change of quantity when a thing gets bigger, and change of quality, you know, and so on. And when the uh, time you get to Aristotle, you have a sophisticated view of all the types of change. You find that many of the problems that they got into disappear because they were confusing one type of change with another. In that sense, yes, that was a problem. But I would never want to say anything that would imply they should have done differently, or that that is a criticism of them because, after all, this is the kindergarten of mankind, and they are, regardless of their errors, the heroes who made the first steps. So, I mean, surely, uh, if they had known what came centuries later, they would have been better. But on the other hand, if they hadn't done what they did, the later centuries couldn't have developed. So I'm always, when someone in the 20th century says everything flows and nothing abides, <laughs> I have a completely different attitude than I do toward Heraclitus. You see. All right, with that, uh, we will conclude and pick up next week. Thank you. This course continues with Lecture 2.